This series was made possible by the Friends of Humanities Kansas. Welcome to Kansas 1972. A lot happened during that pivotal year, including the founding of Humanities Kansas. So, in celebration of our 50th anniversary, we'll be telling you stories from that era of Kansas history. So tune in, chill out, and get the lowdown on 1972. The Wichita Beacon, October 1st, 1972. To all intents and purposes, Winfield might have been the heart of Kentucky this weekend. Bluegrass fans from New Hampshire to California and Minnesota to Texas converged on the city for what was billed as the first annual Walnut Valley Bluegrass Festival and National Guitar Flat Picking Championship. In the fall of 1972, around 10,000 people descended on the Winfield, Kansas fairgrounds to enjoy a long weekend of camping, crafts, and bluegrass music. And for five decades, thousands of music lovers have continued to come to South Central Kansas each year to take part in one of the most beloved bluegrass music festivals in the country. This year, the Walnut Valley Festival celebrates its 50th anniversary. Hey, just like Humanities Kansas. In this episode, we'll learn about the origins of the festival. There are uh, three people that, that really are considered the founders of the festival, and that is Stuart Mossman, Joe Murat, and my father, Bob Redford. Why the early 1970s was a ripe time for an event like this. I do think people were looking for something that felt simpler and kinder and easier to get your head around. What continues to make the festival so special going on 50 years now? Everywhere you walk, every 100 feet or 50 feet, there's a little jam going It's this one week out of the year that you have carved out where you just have this incredible, intense experience with, with other people. And the larger community created around the Walnut Valley Festival. When we see each other every year, it's like the family is getting together, the whole family. This program is a musical journey, a journey back to the roots of American popular music. Last September, I headed down to Winfield to check out the festival for myself. Growing up in Kansas, I of course had heard of the famous Walnut Valley Festival, but had never made it in person. I wandered around the festival grounds for a couple days, audio recorder in hand, and interacted with lots of people who graciously shared their memories and stories. You'll be hearing the voices of these festival goers throughout this episode. Also, quick side note, I've always called it the Walnut Valley Festival, but it seems very few people connected to the festival actually use this full name. For people in Winfield and Cali County, it's usually just called Bluegrass or Festival, as in, I can't get together with you this weekend, it's Bluegrass. And for bluegrass fans coming from outside of the Winfield area, and especially from outside of Kansas, the festival is often referred to as just Winfield. You'll hear the Walnut Valley Festival called all these things in this episode, so heads up. To get a sense of both the history of the festival and what it's like now, I first spoke with Bart Redford. Bart is the executive director of the Walnut Valley Festival, a role he took on from his father, who was one of the original founders in 1972. 
Walnut Valley Festival is a music festival. It's gone through a number of different name changes, but it started in 1972 and it was developed as uh, primarily a, a concert-oriented festival, but also offering contests. Uh, and by that, I mean instrument contest. Uh, our, our flagship contest is the National Flat Picking uh, Championship. Uh, flat pick being a, a, a pick uh, used in, in picking a guitar. The National Flat Pickers Championship is held each year in Winfield. Bluegrass music has such appeal that people of all age groups come from all over the country to participate. They come to play and they come to listen. And then as it has developed, there's a lot of campground picking uh, jams that go on. So there's a lot of folks that come here that actually play themselves and uh, spend most of their time, you know, picking down in the campground. Everywhere you walk, every 100 feet or 50 feet, there's a little jam going And it, and yeah. Going in with any jam they see going, so. You know, and we have not a few artists who actually finish up their sets on the main stages uh, and come down and, and, you know, play around on either one of the campground stages or in one of the jams that's, that's going on. Where else can you sit down with your musical heroes? I mean, I can't sit down with Eric Clapton and play music with him, but I have played plenty of music with Mike Marshall and Daryl Anger and lots and lots of other incredible musicians because that's the... That's this music. There's, there's that boundary doesn't exist. It is primarily, I would say, folk and bluegrass. Striving to recreate the nostalgic sounds of their Scots-Irish ancestral homeland, the fiddle, the banjo, the guitar, and the mandolin created a sound that was called bluegrass or country. Um, but we have quite a few different styles. We've picked up some Western swing and some Western music. Uh, there's a Celtic uh, influence. Well, the music, what my wife and I discovered is that the music was a more diverse. It was a, like a mashup, you know, of, of sounds and music out in the campsites. We hear, I hear some of the greatest live music I hear anywhere, anytime, right here in the campsites. We're not a large festival. My father used to like to say that we're not the biggest, but possibly the best. Uh, and we've had some success in terms of uh, pulling out bands that um, maybe weren't big at the time, uh, but played here and then got huge. Um, or in the early years, we just, you know, we had some bands that, that really set the tone really for, for modern bluegrass. Uh, and uh, some of the people that, you know, we have back every year. So the shows in the early days were really great. You know, they had the, the big headliners, Doc Watson and Norman Blake and the Red Clay Ramblers. Those were some of my favorites. And oh, the Newgrass uh, Revival. Norman Blake, did he? Oh yeah, he yeah. was here. Yeah. And so uh, we could go on and on with the characters we remembered from those early days. And that, of course, was a big draw here too. They've had. You know, there's always somebody good here and interesting shows. So. Camping is also a big part of the festival experience. In the early days, many of the people I talked to remembered pitching a tent on the fairgrounds or even just throwing a mattress in the back of a truck. We came in 1983, and when, we, when you'd come camping, this field was completely empty. I mean, it was, it's grown that much. It was really much smaller. We used to camp down down by the river, and there was never anybody here um, 
when we first started coming. So it's just grown and grown and grown. But people also had smaller rigs. You'd have tents or maybe pop-ups you didn't see. The big campers that we have now. <laughs> so you didn't take up as much room. Yes, it is. Bathrooms are nice. As the longtime festival goers themselves have gotten a bit older, they may now prefer the conveniences of campers and RVs. But what really matters about the festival has remained the same. It was a lot more tents and campers, but we were a lot younger then, so we could camp in tents and stuff. Pretty much the same, actually. A few more people and a lot more campers. <laughs> Take up more room with campers than you did with tents. But other than that, I think the festival's pretty much been the same. That's why everybody likes it. Same thing every year. Get to meet your friends. And it's pretty cool. What makes the Walnut Valley Festival unique, though, is something else that goes on in the campgrounds besides camping. And no, it's not something prurient, although I'm not saying that kind of stuff doesn't happen at festival. What makes Winfield so special, and what keeps many people coming back year after year, is the music inside the campgrounds. There are a sizable percentage, I would say, who spend most of their time uh, down in the campgrounds. Think of the, a lot of people think of the festivals as being what's on the stages. We know people that have been coming for 25 years and have never been inside the, the fairgrounds because at 8 o'clock tonight, there'll be a jam of, I don't know, 5 to 20 people here. And it'll go as long as people want it to go, and then people filter off and go to another one. So that's the festival. While the main stage is always a draw, over the years, a number of stages have been established inside campgrounds by the campers themselves. We've got several campground stages that have established themselves for going on 20, uh, 25 years maybe. Uh, and uh, so they have their own schedule. Uh, they have people show up at, at their campsite and say, I want to play on stage five or stage six or stage seven or stage 11. And uh, um, they'll put together their schedule. And so a lot of people just kind of make their way around and, and catch those shows. Probably the most famous, perhaps even infamous of these, is stage five. Well, stage five is, it's like... Uh, it's like hee-haw meets the Apollo. It's a stage on the, literally on the back of a, of a Chevy grain truck. And you get 20 minutes, two mics, no sound checks. People draw lots to see who plays when. And it's some of the best music I've ever heard. You get these, these people that you don't think that they're smart enough to tie their shoes. And they're up there just ripping it. It all sounds pretty amazing, right? Of course, those of you listening who have been to the festival are probably nodding your heads in agreement and hopefully reliving some great memories. So how did this festival actually get started, and why has it endured for so long? There are uh, three people that, that really are considered the founders of the festival, and that is Stuart Mossman, Joe Murat, and my father, Bob Redford. So who are these three guys, and how did they get this thing off the ground? To help me take a deeper dive into the history of the festival, I also spoke with Seth Bate. Seth recently published a wonderful book on the history of the Walnut Valley Festival, which we'll link to on the episode webpage. 
He started attending the festival in 1989 and married into the Murat family. And he started researching the history of the festival as part of his master's degree in public history at Wichita State University, where he also works. Seth is really the expert on the Walnut Valley Festival, and we had a great conversation sitting where else but outside at his festival campsite. In 1968 and then again in 1971, there were folk festivals that were out at Southwestern College. And the 1968 festival was a larger event. It was significantly the work of Sam Anschus and Stuart Mossman uh, and a bunch of their buddies that they got together. And the Southwestern College Folk Festival in 68 relied on the college's sponsorship and um, donations from community, especially community businesses. There was another smaller version of that in 1971. The people who put it on in 1971, many of them also ended up being volunteers or staff members or enthusiasts of the official Walnut Valley festivals that began in 1972. The late 1960s and early 1970s were a time when music festivals were entering into the larger popular culture with events like Monterey Pop and Woodstock. And this wasn't just for rock and pop music. Genres like folk, country, and bluegrass were also a part of the burgeoning festival scene. The two festivals that probably had the most inspiration for people who started the Walnut Valley Festival, one was the Newport Folk Festival, which you know significantly Pete Seeger had a guiding role in in those early days. And the other was a festival in Mountain View, Arkansas, put on by Jimmy Driftwood, uh, who wrote some great American songs. And uh, so many of the people who kind of got enthusiastic about what would become the Walnut Valley Festival had visited one or both of those. So these experiences with earlier folk and bluegrass festivals in both Winfield and elsewhere helped plant a seed. Stuart Mossman, uh, by 1972, had a a significant early guitar building and selling company operating. And one of the ways that he was making a name for himself was going to festivals to network with people and to sell instruments. So Joe was a friend of Stewart's, uh, took some guitar lessons for him, from him, ended up doing some work at the guitar factory. And uh, Joe was a JC's friend of Bob Redford's. And uh, both Joe and Bob had worked on the motorcycle races. Winfield had hosted motorcycle races for about a decade, and some of the organizers of that event were looking for something new, preferably an event that would be more broadly popular. Stuart and the gang that hung out at and worked at the guitar shop really loved going to festivals and were always kind of wanting Joe to go to. And Joe's kind of a homebody, and he was a farmer and couldn't get away much. And so part of their ribbing over time was Stuart saying, you got to come to this festival. And Joe saying, if you put on a festival here, I'll go to that. Bart Redford remembers his father's role in this story. My father was really sort of annoyed at, at Stuart and other guys coming back and talking about all these great music festivals that they'd been to and thought, well, why can't we do something, you know, here in Winfield? And uh, in one of these kind of bantering conversations, Stuart, who was always a dreamer, 
said, well, you know, if I had $10,000, I could put on a pretty good festival in Winfield. And at some point, Bob said, well, if you can sell me on it, I'd invest in that festival. And Joe says, you know, Bob was a great person to sell to because Bob was a salesman and he appreciated a good pitch. And so Joe must have made a good pitch and said, we need 10 people to each put up $1,000. Bob said, if it's such a good idea, I'll put up the $10,000. And uh, so the nucleus there was Bob, who appreciated music, but wasn't particularly a music enthusiast and thought like a business person. And Joe, who had that kind of farmer mentality that if you work hard enough, something will pay off eventually. And Stuart, who had these great connections and uh, that sparkle that got people excited about things. And uh, I think while the personnel have changed over time, those three elements are still at the core of the festival. The Wichita Eagle, September 17th, 1972. The first Walnut Valley Bluegrass Festival and National Guitar Flat Picking Championship will be held at the Winfield, Kansas Fairgrounds on September 29th through 30th and October 1st. Sponsored by the Southwestern College Cultural Arts Board and the Walnut Valley Association, the festival will feature country guitar and bluegrass band contests. Lester Flat, Jim and Jesse, Doc Watson, the Lewis Family, Byron Burline, the Newgrass Revival, Dan Crary, Mormon Blake, the Stone Mountain Boys, and the Bluegrass Country Boys will be some of the nationally acclaimed artists and concerts during the three days. We plan a lot of fiddle, banjo, and guitar music out under the trees along the Walnut River, said Stuart Mossman, festival director. Everyone who plays is invited to bring their instruments and join in with those who just want to come and listen. So how did that first festival go? What do people remember about that inaugural year? Again, Seth Bate. The exciting part that people talk about is getting three of the legends of flat-pick guitar on stage together, swapping tunes, and that was still unusual enough that people were amazed by it. And people talk about how electrifying it was. And it was exciting enough that even people who didn't really consider themselves students of guitar loved that moment. And the weather was terrible, and they didn't sell very many tickets, and they lost a lot of money. But despite these setbacks, they persevered. But they kept going, and the third year, by all accounts, had beautiful weather and great attendance, and they all kind of knew what they were doing, and the guitar contests were starting, the guitar contest was starting to generate some excitement in that flat picking world. Flat picking as a style was still relatively new, and it was the style most associated with bluegrass players. And it wasn't just the music that was memorable. One festival goer I spoke to was a Winfield local who came to the first Walnut Valley Festival as a teenager. I was 15, remember? It felt seedy to me. And I remember coming over with my brother, who was six years older than me, sitting around a campfire and watching uh, the guy with the uh, washboard Leo, mm-hmm. washboard Leo here in the campground. And it just, I just felt like I was in this gypsy den camp. of, yeah, like a gypsy camp. And like, I'm sure I could smell funny smells. And you know, it was just like, wow, this is culture shock a little bit for me, but it was, it was fun. 
Since the 1960s, there had been a revival in interest in folk music, including bluegrass in America, with younger listeners invested in both rediscovering traditions, but also newer and more popular variations on these musical styles. So there is this kind of association between youth culture, even hippies, and bluegrass. The Wichita Eagle on October 1st of 1972 reported about 60% of the attendees at the first Walnut Valley Festival were young people. Bob Redford is quoted in the article as saying, Most bluegrass fans are 50 and over. Apparently, the college students are getting away from rock and going to this. I want to find out, uh, do you agree with Alan Lomax's definition of music that bluegrass is is folk music an overdrive? Uh, I think that's about the best, the best definition of bluegrass that I've heard. When I first heard that tune about 30 years ago, it didn't go so fast. Little piece of shortcake, little piece of pudding, I gave it all away to my darling Sally Gooden. It was still in third gear. <laughs> well, with today's higher speeds, I guess the music uh, takes on its speed also. But the influence of youth culture is only one aspect of the larger bluegrass scene at the time. It was also about good old-fashioned family-friendly fun. I stumbled in for for one day uh, and was just so taken with the whole experience. I remember it had been raining a bunch, and we went to uh, a kids' concert. Uh, John McCutcheon and other people put on this thing just for kids, aimed at kids. And these families are out there and they're splashing in the water and just having a great time. And you can see the campsites in the background. And I'm going, holy man, this is, I want to be part of this. It's just, there's something about this place that is family and community in a way that nothing else that I've ever seen. And as Seth Bate comments, the family-friendly focus was a conscious move on the part of the organizers from the very beginning. I think for Winfield the town, not Winfield the event, the Walnut Valley Festival created, in many cases deliberately, uh, but created uh, an image of a place where it was fine to take the family. My single favorite uh, thing that I found in the research was a Winfield Courier article from the year it was starting of Stuart Mossman speaking to the Winfield Rotary Club and saying, this is going to be a family-friendly event. Many people over the age of 50 will be attending and bringing their families. So if the 50-year-olds are coming, it must be okay. Remember that 1972 was in the middle of a tumultuous era in American history. And if you've listened to any other episodes of this podcast, you'll know that's true. The various protest movements of the era, the counterculture, economic disruptions, growing ecological concerns, made many people feel overwhelmed and uncertain about the future. You see attempts to grapple with the complicated times in the grants given by Humanities Kansas, then the Kansas Committee for the Humanities, in 1972. Titles include Family Values in a Changing Kansas, Traditions in Transition, and Changing Human Values. Through these programs, people were coming together to try to find common ground and build community through discussions rooted in history, literature, ethics, and philosophy. However, sometimes people just wanted a simpler way to make sense of the messy present. 
I do think people were looking for something that, whether real or almost real or entirely imagined, felt simpler and kinder and easier to get your head around. And I think the Walnut Valley Festival was one of those places where people could find that, or at least could round it up into that experience. And so to come to a place where you just throw a tent down and you get out your guitar and you find some friends and you go see the soap making demonstration and you sing some songs that maybe you learned from 78 records, I think captured some of that feeling for people. As the 1970s moved on, while the festival was going strong, Stuart Mossman and Joe Murat stepped back from their roles in the festival and Bob Redford became the executive director, a role he held for decades until his son Bart took over in 2017 after Bob's passing. Bart still remembers how much his father loved his work. The festival was something where it really was a, a labor of love for him. He enjoyed uh, getting out and meeting people during festival. There were a lot of people who would see him every year and, and you know, come by and, and say hi. And, and uh, he just loved hearing people's stories and where they were from and, and uh, uh, talking to them. And it's this connection with other people, forged every year through seeing each other again and again at the festival, that really stood out to me in almost all my conversations with festival goers. The folks over there have camped um, next to us for many years. And so we play with them all the time. And when we see each other every year, it's like the family is getting together, the whole family. To better understand the dynamics of this community, I spoke with Robert Gardner, a professor of sociology at Linfield College in Oregon. He's the author of the book, The Portable Community, Place and Displacement in Bluegrass Festival Life. I'll put a link to the book on the episode website. I asked Robert Gardner to explain his concept of portable community and how it relates to the Walnut Valley Festival. Portable community really refers to this intimate sense of community that emerges from recurring or temporary events. So these are types of community that emerge, flourish, disband in open fields or parking lots or even hotel lobbies over a relatively short period of time. Um, and they really emerge at various types of events like bluegrass festivals or rodeos or sporting events, NASCAR events, dog shows, comic book conventions, or even professional conferences. One key aspect of these kinds of portable communities is that they come together reliably at regular intervals, which gives the community a sense of stability and even familiarity. Gardner's own experiences at the Walnut Valley Festival connect with this point. The first time I attended Winfield, I was driving through the gates and you know, I showed my ticket, um, make sure I was you know, in the right, right place. And they handed me a, a set of bumper stickers, one of which said, I can't, I'm going to Winfield. And it had the dates for the next Winfield festival, uh, third weekend in September, right? You know, it's going to happen on that weekend every single year. And so people will block their calendars. People will you know, ask for vacation time, you know, a year in advance. Um, but it's very clear that, you know, once, you there, once you're there the first time, you're coming back, right? And so there's that, that sense of continuity that you always know when it's going to be and that it's, it's something that is, is kind of reliable from one, one year to the next. 
Besides returning year after year, there are other aspects of Winfield that help reinforce the sense of community at the festival. One is just the bluegrass music itself. If you listen to the music, you know, they, they call it three chords in the truth, right? You, you have, you know, most of the music is, is centered around a very sim- simplistic, um, you know, sort of structure um, that allows it to be very accessible to a wide range of people. Um, you know, you have a G chord, a C chord and a D chord, and you know about 10,000 bluegrass songs. And so it provides this easy entry point for people to, to kind of tap into it, um, to listen to it, to recognize it. It's something about picking and singing, which, uh, well, you can, all you need to do is you get a guitar player, a banjo player, a mandolin player, a fiddle, and they just need to know the key they're in and they can sail off. I don't know how it is. Even with all the accomplished musicians on stage and in the camps, bluegrass is a style of music even a beginner can feel welcome to play along with. This welcoming attitude connects to another important part of what creates a sense of community at the festival, and that's the campground culture. The campground culture is a really interesting one because people create themed camps. They they usually, um, not, not everybody, but there are a core group of people that will develop a a camp identity or a name for their camp and they will keep that that same name you know from one year to the next it becomes a you know a a reliable place that people can return to um, and and kind of see and recognize Uh, they know that they're going to be able to find their their group of people or their friends or the people that they met at the festival the the previous year this is my family right here and they didn't mean to adopt me but i forced my way in and get gunpoint but (laughs) i'm non-violent typically but um, this is the this is the best camp and if you ask anybody else they're lying the other i think big piece of of winfield and what really draws people in is the campsite jamming so there's this ritual of people showing up with their instruments Um, i read somewhere that there are over half of the participants at winfield will bring an instrument with them and they're musicians. And so you have, you know, obviously you have the professional musicians that are sort of brought there to perform or to participate in the um, instrument championships that uh, that uh, Winfield is famous for. But you also have uh, amateur musicians who are just, you know, kind of you know, play in their basement or maybe get together with a small jam group in their community. As the week goes on, even before the official festival starts, each camp will have different jams and it's it goes on under the street lights till three four o'clock in the morning and and so there's very little sleep for some and and it just it's just magic well they can come there and they can kind of share their songs with other people or get an opportunity to play music with a new group uh, or a new set of people or perhaps people that they've known for you know 20 30 years and that they've been coming to every third weekend in september and getting together and play music with this, you know, familiar group of strangers. But while a love of bluegrass music and related genres unites this familiar group of strangers, the festival has always attracted a diverse group of people in terms of political views, economic class, religious beliefs, and the like. Um, Well, this is a lot of different people here from a lot of different backgrounds. But part of the community created at Walnut Valley helps to break down these barriers. Here's Robert Gardner. The first time I attended Winfield, 
I pulled into the campground. I tried to set up camp. Um, and, uh, out of the corner of my, my eye, I, I heard, um, or, you know, sort of saw and heard, uh, this group of musicians were playing one of my favorite songs called Salt Creek. And so I play guitar. And so I just kind of left my tent there, pulled out my guitar and ran over to this jam because I wanted to play this song. And so I, uh, as I got up to the jam, there were these two gentlemen who, you know, big, tall, burly guys, enormous belt buckles, shirts tucked in, you know, enormous cowboy hats. And, you know, they're, they're, you know, sort of, pressed jeans and and these these were some tough looking characters right and these were guys that i would have never in, interacted with in my everyday life um, their lifestyle was very different than mine their their life experience is very different than mine but here we are i haven't even exchanged names with these these guys and i am singing harmonies with them and playing music together seth bate also has a take on this phenomenon i actually think that there are some people who get a special kick out of like deliberately bridging that gap. It's almost a little transgressive. 11 months out of the year, I don't know if I'd be talking to this person, but I'm doing it now and it's kind of great. And we all know that Hank Williams song. I might be making that part up, but I think it's a little bit of a thrill to do something that you just don't do in other places in your life. And these kinds of interactions also help create festival community bonds. It really struck me that this is this is this sort of really, really interesting place where boundaries are broken down. You, you don't necessarily talk about politics, but I think you also kind of there's a there's a sort of healing that takes place, I think, um, and an understanding that takes place in these types of settings that allow people to reach beyond religious divides. Uh, economic divides, social divides, political divides, where you just meet people as people and you encounter people as people. And those things aren't important anymore. Robert Gardner's description of the space created by the festival really reminds me of the experiences people reported having when they attended Humanities Kansas events in the 1970s. So maybe in our current times, when some of these divides seem so insurmountable, maybe we all just need to go to the Walnut Valley Festival or also attend a Humanities Kansas program. I'm past thinking that everybody coming to Bluegrass is the answer to all the world's ills, but it sure makes it easier to live with them. One of the terms that kept coming up again and again in my interviews was Brigadoon the magical village that appears out of a misty Scottish glen for only one day every hundred years, as portrayed in the 1954 MGM musical. That sense of this being a special, even sacred place, that only happens for a short period of time, really intensifies the experience for many festival-goers. One of the people I interviewed said that everyday life is the 51 week supply run for Winfield, right? It's the, it's, this is what, what life is worth living for, right? It's this one week out of the year that you have carved out where you just have this incredible intense experience with, with other people. And, you know, the rest of the year, you're thinking about it, you're remembering it, you're telling stories about it, you're telling your coworkers about it, and you're gearing up for next year. 
But unlike the mythical town of Brigadoon, which will disappear forever if an inhabitant leaves its boundaries, the festival community creates bonds with each other that transcend the space and time of the Winfield Fairgrounds for a week in September. These are the kinds of bonds that help us get through the other 51 weeks of the year. This point really struck me during my interview with one particular Walnut Valley festival goer, and I think it's an appropriate end to our story. Note that we're airing this clip unedited, so you'll hear my voice in the background too. Music brings people together. And we just, yeah. This was, my husband's dream was to have lots of people playing under the tent. Sorry, I'm a little emotional. No, it's okay. That's what I love about, I mean, everybody I talk to, just the, the community that gets created. That's yeah. So special. It's, it's my second year without my husband, so. Winfield is very special, so it's also very emotional, so I'm very glad you're not. But, <laughs> you know, how amazing to keep him for a year and sort of honor him. Right. Yes, it is, and um, one of our um, members, his wife is, um, she's an artist and she made um, a sign that says Tom's Pickin' Parlor that we have, you know, hanging up in the porch where everybody used to come at our house and, and gather, and, and they've made signs that we have in our, under our canopy and everything now too. So yeah, it's just really, it's like, when we come to Winfield, even though we're not any of us actually related, we're like family. You know, that's, um, you know, like the kite camp, everybody came to the, you know, my husband's funeral, and that was, you know, because he's what brought them all together. And so, yes, it's, it's awesome. I'll remember that day. Short moments in our lifetime when we were one with nature. Catch you on the flip side. Humanities Kansas is an independent nonprofit leading a movement of ideas to strengthen Kansas communities and our democracy. Since 1972, HK's pioneering programs, grants, and partnerships have documented and shared stories to spark conversations and generate insights. Together with statewide partners and supporters, HK invites all Kansans to draw on history, literature, and culture to enrich their lives and to serve the communities and state we all proudly call home. Join the movement of ideas at humanitieskansas.org.